Welcome to the Premium Property Podcast. Created by two beginners, it is the perfect listen for those of you who are just finding your feet in the property industry. We will ask questions that other beginners, just like us, have been waiting to hear, and we will be learning along with you. I'm Harley. And I'm Guy. And this is the Premium Property Podcast. Hi Harvey, welcome to the podcast. It's fantastic to have you on today and what you're doing with your, your sort of remote investing and the content that you're putting out is giving us a lot of help. So yeah, we thought we'd get you on and um, yeah, massive welcome. So thanks for coming on. Thank you for inviting me guys, as I was saying, pre to this setup in super admiration of you guys as well, just getting going how you're going. So yeah, yes, super honour and really, really, uh, yeah, really, really pleased you invite me on because I really like what you are also doing. Perfect. Yeah, appreciate that, Harvey. So, yeah, um, in terms of yourself, then obviously for those who maybe aren't sure sort of what you do um, or a bit about your background, you, would you just be able to give us an introduction to yourself and who you are and what you do in property? Yeah, for sure. So I'm Harvey. I kind of just changed this today, saying that I was I usually say I'm a remote property investor, but uh, that said, I'm a remote property entrepreneur because I think today property is not so much about investment it's more about running as a business you need to really more understand how to run it as a business if you do do it as an investment you need to pay somebody to run it as a business for you you know but it's gone on the days that you could just buy a property let it go up in loads of value and retire off of that it's, it's definitely got more complicated with all the regulations the, the tax changes but that's still a very great uh, asset class really great business but you need to re- be able to run it like a business but i'm a remote property entrepreneur or investor uh that means i live in the south but i invest in the northeast been investing there for about eight years so initially started off investing locally but very much like many people that live in and around london i run out of funds very quick there wasn't many brr deals and i just bumped into somebody in the northeast uh he actually moved down from the northeast i bumped into him and as a result, I started buying off properties in that remote location for the, for the fact that you can pick up the, the return on capital employed is it's non-comparable. The barrier to entry is so lower. The, uh, the more there's more mo- at the moment and time of speaking with this, there's not a lot of motivated sellers. The whole country's experienced a bit of a property boom, but in general, you get more motivated sellers because the market's not strong on the sales side, which gives you more motivated sellers. So the BRR model works fantastically there. So yeah, mainly build it up. I've got a portfolio. I've got a portfolio building service. I've got a lettings company. I've got a coaching company. I really work on my businesses to work them as businesses. So I've got team systems to, to try and operate the businesses without me as much as possible. Uh, the, le- the, the coaching one's new, so it's still taking quite a bit of my input but the lettings and the property side is pretty systemized to operate without me but we've done over about 80 deals mainly buy refurbishing mortgage single lets but uh got a commercial conversion done a done commercial conversion uh got a few hmos but i just like the simplicity of single let properties i find they're, they're just my favorite you know would i do another com- commercial conversion in the future probably would i do another hmo probably but it's not something i massively gravitate towards because Although there can be bigger incomes, there's bigger 
trade-offs for that income before you have to do that. So like the rep, just getting it set up, the teams you need, everything just takes a little bit more effort. So have I got the effort to do that? I'm not sure, but maybe one day again. Uh, yeah, perfect. Yeah, and I think obviously, um, like you said, that's sort of what we experienced as well because we're based in the Midlands and in terms of, we were originally sort of tr started trying to source in the Midlands and um, it just wasn't really working for, for BRR single let deals. So um, yeah, now we've sort of moved our area to Yorkshire and we're having a lot more success because the, the yields and the return on capital employed, like you said, they're just a lot higher. So yeah, definitely, definitely a lot of benefits to, to investing up north, like you said. Yeah, for sure. And the thing is, everybody gets stuck in the preconceived, like for usual, it's great because you don't know any different, but like, there's been a little un, un, unknown little law in the property world saying that you should only invest where you know, you know, and going back to my original story is I, I was born in London, but from the age of about six, I grew up in a little village just out on the outskirts. And even without any education at the time, when I bought my first deals, I knew that that location wasn't an investment location. It didn't have a lot of stock there. It's a little village, no employers, HMOs don't work there, price is too high. So naturally, I looked within an hour to invest. So that's without any education or anything. But the, the advantage you get of investing where you are locally is because you know the streets inside out. So I didn't have that advantage one hour away. I, did, I knew the streets no better one hour away than I knew four hours away in stockton on Tees where I invest now. Uh, the, the, the other uh, the, the other uh, the, the other advantage you get when you invest locally is the network of people you have so again from one hour away I didn't know anybody in one hour away having a network there and it's a little bit too far from my network close to want to really drive an hour to do refurbs and things like that so I didn't gain no strategic and also the very last one is finances so the money for the deals if I can't afford the deposit in the first place, the strategic advantage of investing where I live is zero because I'm not going to be able to buy anything. So, so yeah, there is trade-offs. Of course, it's nice to be able to jump in a car. Jumping in a car within an hour is a lot more realistic than four hours where I invest. But you have to weigh up the trade-offs. So the barrier to entry, the affordability, and, and understanding, knowing the area, that advantage that I got from knowing the area was zero because I didn't know it. And the first flat I ever bought in South End turned out to be in a red light district, right in the middle of a red light district. I bought it from an agent, probably, not probably, should have definitely done more due diligence, but I was new, hungry to it, didn't do any education, said to the agent, I want to buy to let it. And he's like, yeah, great location. It was right in the middle of a red light district. And then to top it off, literally four doors up, well, the red light district wasn't like something you'd see on the movies or Amsterdam, a really like cool, trendy place. It was like heroin addicts, crack addicts, walking around the street at night time to get their fix. And then to top it off, three doors up from my flat that I bought was a drug rehabilitation center for heroin addicts and crack addicts. So the same ladies that would be walking the street at night time would turn up in the morning, queuing up for their drug rehabilitation, their medicines and their rehabilitation. So it's right, the, and this is what really broke that myth for me. I was like, I didn't know that area, no better than I knew four hours away. And for me to get to know that area would be the same effort as I'd use if it's four hours away, apart from the driving there. I'd go on Google, right move, uh, and, and just do research on the location, on the crime the reports, on all the reports of the area. I had a lucky break because a guy I met come, moved down from there who had over 70 properties. He moved down from where I live, he had over 70 properties. 
and I had a lucky break in the terms of he guided me into the area. But them lucky breaks are not, it's not lucky today. Everything you can do in person can be done virtually on your phone today. Yes, you might have to outsource it. Yes, there is a few trade-offs, but you can network today, now online and meet them people in them areas. So it's all about building a network. Business is about networks and building networks. And you can go online and build a network faster than any other way possible. Even if you're investing locally, it's still faster to go online and build a network. It's nice to do a bit of in-person stuff mixture with that if you can but it's definitely definitely viable yeah yeah definitely there's there's some great points there and i think obviously like you said with the the network you can just on facebook linkedin instagram you can build up such a great network and especially facebook groups if you ask does anyone invest in this area there'll usually be sort of 10 comments of people investing in the area or people who actually know people as well and it can't you can just start having those conversations straight away whereas obviously if you were attending physical networking events there's only so many people you can speak to within an hour of a, a networking event so yeah that's that's such a great point yeah exactly that as well so i've always got this book to hand to always talk about it in the book influence it says there's seven points of contact before people build that trust in you no likability and trust google done and this book was written i don't know what year i should look at it because i always talk about this google uh this was probably written in the 1980s or maybe 1990s google done a new study because of social media that touch points built up now even more people people guards up even more we get four thousand adverts come across our, people online which near everybody we get four thousand demands for our attention just from adverts alone per day on average so now today people want to trust they're more guarded than ever so to build up in touch points you can build up touch points in person or you can build up content and build touch points to say you come across me that's how i come across shoes i trusted you enough to say yeah okay i'd have to jump on your podcast because i've had touch points with you and i've seen what you've been up to and the same happens with solicitors builders uh uh accountants brokers everybody you can build these touch points from doing your content online and as i said google done this study they called it zermot zero moment of truth where they say this is the moment of truth where people buy from you and they build enough trust in you and google's got the most data in the world so they really well positioned to tell you this they said it is 11 to 12 touch points now so building up in touch i had a solicitor phone me yesterday and the first thing she was like, she's she's probably, I don't want to guess her age, so I don't want to offend her, but she's got to be late 50s, early 60s. And she's on Instagram. She, the first thing she said to me is, oh, Oscar's doing good, like my boy. Oh, you've been doing well. I've seen what you're up to. So, so I've got credibility just from documenting my journey. But also then she knows a bit about me personally and my son. She's in Stockton on Tees. Like she never met my son. She's calling my first name terms. She really gets on with me well. And this is the same with agents, with builders, people online. So that network building, as you said, if you went to a network event, you might get, you might speak to five people. You then got to follow them up and you've got to try and get 11 touch points times five to just build a network of five, where if you do one video that can then like go into multiple people and you get these touch points with just putting the effort in once. Yes, you do want to blend it into some personal interaction and jumping on people on Zooms or meeting them in person. But even if you're in a location you lived, it's still very important to, 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 to build your brand and your content. And my, my network's been massively built from from me just doing videos. People in the area, if you go, like you said, Facebook's the most powerful one because of the groups and communities. There's already groups and communities of people you 
in your trade and what you want to do. And they just hold their hands up. I'm from the area. Like, oh, I connect with you. Or you just ask the questions and people hold their hands up. So, yes, so much more doable. There is trade-offs for it, but it is definitely achievable in today's world. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think, like you said, you can just but you can just build a network from putting yourself out there and documenting your journey. And I think without that, we wouldn't have as much credibility as we do because obviously naturally we look quite young. So if we were attending physical networking events, people probably would judge us, even if it was subconsciously. And now that we've built that brand, we are a lot more known and a lot more credible with people. So yeah, I definitely, definitely agree with that. Um, so so yeah, obviously on the topic of remote investing then, we've sort of touched on it quite a bit already, but if you could sort of summarise the, the keys in terms of what to get right when you are investing remotely, what would they be? Yeah, so first of all, I say that the power of your questions is the power of your results in anything in life. And what you do, the better questions you ask yourself or ask other people, the better results you'll give. So you constantly want to be questioning yourself like constructively so there's main questions i go through is first of all number one is location how far away is it from you how quick could you get in the car and get there the closer the better by the way there's always trade-offs within this so when i work with people I, I, we score these questions so say one to five how far away is it like for me stockton on tees is a one because it's four hour drive uh but then number two is price how much money do you want to how much money can you afford for deposits because if you like a lot of people go manchester but Manchester, you're looking at 150s now, you know? So if you can't afford them deposits, it just wipes it out straight away. So look at what the price barrier is you can afford to get into with. Number three is network. Do you know anybody in them areas? Not import, not a must, because as we explained, you can build them networks. But if you know someone in the area, that scores well. So going on my score, so number one location was a one, because it's four hours away. Number two was a five, because it was affordable for me. Number three, network. I, I met a guy that moved down to where I live, was from the area who had a big network there so that was a five then you want to think about uh capital growth uh and you want to always think about capital growth or earned growth so uh, like forced forced appreciation so if you want capital appreciation you've got to sacrifice the fact that there's not going to be as many motivated sellers so you're not going to do the brr so well so you've got to then wait for your appreciation to potentially refinance your money if you want more motivated sellers you go to an area that's not so much capital or growth but you can enforce the appreciation for me false appreciation outweighs capital appreciation all day long because by the time you've waited for that capital you could have bought five or six properties and forced that appreciation have more capital in them properties and more cash flow just waiting for the, the market to rise of course we'd like a blend of both but that's very rare to get both uh, in most areas. Usually you've got one or the other, or usually more predominantly one than the other. You always get motivated sellers in every market, in every town, but usually them indicators predominantly push it one way or another. So you ask yourself what you want, capital growth or, or false appreciation. There's a general rule. If you wanted capital growth, look at Liverpool's, look at Manchester's, you know, look at these areas. If you want, uh, if you want false appreciation, you look more towards the Yorkshire's, you know, and places like that. A general rule everywhere's got micro economies within them then the next question you ask yourself is return on capital employed like and return on investment how much return on capital employed do i want you know some people might be happy with a five percent return you know some people might want double digits so you ask yourself where you're comfortable with that, that. and again similar yorkshire and the northeast is usually got higher yields 
in the northwest at the moment. And then the final one is what is the rent demand in these locations? Everywhere would have microeconomies within microeconomies. So Liverpool, they've got micro postcodes within there that are really good and not so good. And Manchester has the same. So you have to go a bit of a deeper dive. But in general, you want to look, is there a strong enough rent demand? So for me, going through them figures again, yields scored a five. Capital growth scored maybe a two or three where I was. So that was low. But rents didn't score quite so strong. Return on investment was, was really strong, five. Rents was probably more like a three to a four. So it was strong enough rent to not walk away from it, but not as strong as if I went to some of these hot areas in Liverpool or Manchester. But when I looked at, there's always trade-offs. So when I looked at these trade-offs, I was like, okay, I'm not going to get as much capital growth. It's, it's a long drive, but for the fact I could get good BRR and I've got a good network in the area, it was worth them trade-offs for that. And that's what you, everybody has got different trade-offs that it'd be worth it for them. But, but they're the key factors. And if you don't know anybody in a location already, I always start with, do you know anybody in the location that's got a bit of experience? If that is the case and it's within four, four and a half hours, then that might be a good place to start. But if you don't know anybody, then just look at your price barrier and then geographically, just look on the maps, look at tat, like the fundamentals. You want towns that have got over 50,000 properties and good stock because if you've got a small town, if you, I mean, cities, sorry, not little towns because you've got little towns and villages there's not enough stock to get why refurbish mortgage but yeah look at the most geographical place closest to you on the map within the price barrier you want to spend if you don't know anybody you might just go the closest then you know so yeah 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 that's that's a great way to to analyze the areas and obviously like you said it's about the the trade-offs and, and what sort of works for you because obviously some people do invest primarily for for capital appreciation so those areas would suit them and then obviously some people invest more for um, rental yields and obviously return on capital employed. So yeah, it is just about, about that in the end, isn't it? And obviously I think you touched on a great point in terms of the forced appreciation versus the capital appreciation, because obviously I think the great thing about forced appreciation is you can control it more because obviously if you're buying a property, you can determine how you're going to add value to that and control it. And I guess the time that, like you said, the time that you've spent waiting for the capital growth, you could have brought five, maybe even more in that time and obviously have the same sort of value or more. So, yeah, that's a fantastic point. Yeah, for sure. I get asked because I live in the South, people say, what about the capital growth? And, I say, and half the time now I'm saying, what about if you look at the top performing capital growth cities in the UK for the last five years. So this is not one year little fluke. The last five years, it's been Manchester, Liverpool, Nottingham. There's no, like London stalled in 2016. Uh, last year, it grew a little bit because we had the stamp duty relief and we had, uh, we, with London, the UK done a deal with Hong Kong like for residencies, like because they're having struggles, like they're in a political war with uh, China and they're like UK offered them residency. So we got a load of influx of uh, overseas money, especially with the stamp duty relief, come back into London. But since then, it's, it's plateaued. And if you look over the history of this, and I, like I follow a guy called Ray Dalio and he talks about economic cycles and he says what most people do is they look at an economic cycle close in from the history of what they can see today. You know, they don't, you've got to zoom out and look at the longer cycle because you have mini cycles and bigger cycles. You have cycles within cycles. So everybody can see, look, since 1996, London grew 518% up until 2016. That's phenomenal. But then when you take this into perspective, 
the average wage in London in 1996 was 22,000 pounds. So the price per earnings ratio of the houses, the, the average price of the house was 79,000 pounds. So the price per earning ratio was about just over three on the average prices and the average wage. Fast forward to 2016, the average price was short of half a million pound, 488,000 pound, and the average earning only jumped up to uh, 37,000, 36,000 pound in 1996. So the, the wages jumped up 11% and the property jumped up 518%. So this tells you this wasn't the home buyers that was forcing the price up. It was overseas investors that was mainly forcing the price up. But also it was the people that, that bought houses 30 years ago and didn't have any mortgage anymore. But they, they bought a house for like for less than that. When you go back 30 years, the average price in London in 1970 was £15,000. So these baby boomers bought these houses for £15,000. Their mortgages paid off. Now they're worth a million pounds, half a million pounds. So a lot of the transactions in and around London was cash buyers from people that had earned equity. And they, they not from their wages, they could just do it off of the money they'd earned in their houses. There's only 5% of London that earn the six figure and above wages. So the rest of them can't afford these homes. So when you, when you look at the bigger picture of this, what happened in 2016 to stop this, this growth keep on going? So what happened was they'd done the Paris of the North deal. They'd done the stamp duty uh, extra charge on second homes. This happened to overseas buyers. They'd done the, the they'd done a capital gains tax uh, cap for overseas buyers. They'd done the, the section 24, so more tax again. So there was loads of implementations that come in, come in around that time. Baby boomers hit 70, so they started downsizing and moving out of London. So taking their money and downsizing, plus baby boomers, they, owe, they had about 2.4 kids on average. So as they're passing away, they've hit 70 in 19, 2016, sorry. And as they're downsizing or passing away, their, their properties are getting like diluted downwards. So all these factors with the fact that, as I said, the government done a deal in the North and they started, like big employers started getting places in Manchester, places in Sheffield, places in uh, Leeds. This really now, for, in my view, I don't know if I'm 100% right on this, but this has really pushed them prices that compress London from keep on growing. That said, as I said, the average price per earnings ratio in London is 18 times the average wage. And they put a cap on five times your salary in and around 2014 as well because of the last mortgage crash. So all these factors shows you, to shows me anyway, and I, I believe the only way London can grow again is not by home buyers. You look at the average demographic of the home owner and the younger people, they don't, they don't own homes. So the only way London can grow again is if they keep on encouraging foreign investment in. But that's not a vote winner for the government either. They don't want just foreign investments buying. They want people to be homeowners. So again, I feel the growth is not in the South anymore anyway. There is going to be growth. It's not going to be at 518% like it was previously. Because when that growth happened, you could see that the wage per earnings ratio was only about just over three times wage per earnings ratio when that started. Doing that same sort of growth from an 18 an 18 uh, times wage per earnings ratio is going to be a lot different today, as I said, but unless they attract, so last year they took stamp duty away tax and they, they attracted foreign investment in with Hong Kong and, and London had a 4% growth, wasn't even in the top five of the top growers. So I can't see exponential growth where we had previously and the areas I can see that in is going to be more than north anyway. And especially for the fact that, if you go back in history, as I said, we had a 20-year period when it went absolutely bonkers. But you go back further in history, so you go back when UK was the leading nation, right? we was the world reserve currency, we was the dominate, dominant power of the world. 
you go back to them times, the whole of the UK was pretty even. So Liverpool had all the, the textile and the factories. You went to the northeast, it had all the steel factories and the coal mines. We was a producing nation. We was we we created all the steam engines. We we restarted the Industrial Revolution. And what happened with that was America took over it from us from that Industrial Revolution. So we lost all the steel, energy changed, and it was changes. So then all these big factories, when you go to Liverpool and you go to uh to uh, Middlesbrough, my area, you can see all this architecture from the from the Victorian period when there was loads of wealth there, and then that just left when when we lost all the industries, it left and it all come to London as a business hub. So that's when that north south divide really happened. So if you go back further than this 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 last 20, 30 years, the whole of the UK was pretty even. So so now I can see this even. I don't think it's going to catch up the north, but I can see this more even in that because big employers have turned up in Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield. Uh, and these other areas, and they've proven the concept. Plus, businesses in these uncertain times now are going to be want to be more streamlined and lean. I can see Manchester, Liverpool being the top performing growth areas coming. I can't see the South overtaking them myself. So when people ask about this this capital growth in the South, I'm like, what sort of capital growth? We're really plateaued for like for five years now, and I, I can't see that majorly coming back. And all COVID and people moving out of London. I think that's going to be a little bit temporary, but they're definitely going to be people that's going to work. Uh, like my neighbours, for example, they moved out from Barnet in London, just on the outskirts of London, where I am, in Brentwood, Essex, because it was cheaper. They commuted into the city. As soon as that last year happened, let one worked for Barclays, one worked for an accountancy firm, and both of them firms told them they only got to come back to the office two days a week when we get back to normal. So I was like, okay, we're happy to commute further. So they moved even further out to Colchester and got a bigger house because they only have to commute two days a week, not five days a week. So this is, yeah, I think this is going to happen a lot more and just slow that down in the South. I don't think the South's going to fall off a cliff or anything. I just don't think we're going to experience that same sort of capital appreciation as we did. Yeah, definitely. And again, I think what what you've just said was really, really good and kind of gives a really good insight into the market because I, I think that's what kind of lacks a bit within the the property circle now is people aren't looking about the economic factors so again i think that's a really really good answer and although it might not seem it now but in, in your opinion because the north is now so attractive due to its lower prices do you think what happened in um, what happened in london could potentially happen in the north do you see a lot of overseas investment going more into the north now or it's coming, it's gone, it's already in there. More overseas investments turn up in Manchester, but Manchester's now getting to that cycle. Manchester, they call it like the new London. So it's getting to that cycle. So what will happen with Manchester, and as the infrastructure gets better, that like all the surrounding area is going to pick up. So, but it's happening at a more realistic pace. So the average wage in London, 700 and something pound a week. I can't remember the exact statistic. The average wage in Manchester is around just short of 600 pound, like 560, something like that. These are not exact numbers, by the way, guys. It's roughly that. You can still pick up a starter home for 150 in Manchester, as opposed to a starter home in London, at more like 350, 400,000, you know? So it just shows you the comparable where you can go with your money. So I think definitely the more power is going to happen in the northern towns and exactly the more employers as well. I don't know if you ever heard, heard of Roger Bannister and the four minute mile. When that four minute mile got broken, everybody think, thought you couldn't break this four minute mile. And uh, even doctors back in the day, like I can't remember, I think it was in 1960 something. They was all saying it's not medically possible for the human being to run a mile in under four minutes. But then Roger Bannister broke it one year. And when he broke it, that mindset just got shifted. So then five people, I think four or five people that same year broke it straight after he did. 
after years of people trying to do it, as soon as one person done it, that belief factor got built in. And now people do it all the time. And very similar, all overseas money used to come into London because they thought that was the only place to invest. But then they've done this power to the North deal and they've done it in Manchester. And then big employers turned up. And this is my view, by the way. Don't know if I'm 100% right. But you buy a building in London, you'd be paying central London £8 million maybe for this office block. You go to Manchester, you'll buy an office block for under a million pound. So you've got to think about it. If you're like, if you're like a service provider just selling to people, so they don't have to come to you locally, they don't have to geographically come to you. So you're just a service provider like a, uh, like a like my nephew, for example. He works for a telecoms company. So they just provide everybody across the UK. So you think about it. If you've got to pay eight million pounds for a building or the rent on that building and hire people in that building or go to Sheffield, my nephew's in Sheffield, and have a building for 500,000 pounds and hire people for the same wage but then still sell at the back end for the same price. You can't up your wage because you've got a London office this then i think that four minute mile got broke with a lot of these these big companies and in, like and these big investors they're like oh okay it actually does work in new locations we don't just have to be in london and as it worked on manchester you can see it's going to leeds sheffield liverpool nottingham you can just see it spreading so yeah to answer your question sorry it's a bit long-winded there i think the north is going to be the growth and people now are searching for yields did you see the north East has been the last touch phase. It seems like just from investment alone, it's getting pushed up, but then infrastructure is going into that, into that as well. In my location alone, they've built they've built the Teesside Airport, which has got direct links into London now and, and links out. Well, they've not built it, they've reopened it for really good channels. They've got a renewable carbon energy uh, uh, centre getting built now, which 50 places in Europe wanted it, and it's the first one being built. They're going to create 4,000 jobs. Amazon's turned up there. Some steelworks getting funding from the power, so the North being. So you can see the thing that the North lacked before was, was employers. Now these employers have realised, okay, we can turn up in other areas. And I think COVID is going to excel this and more because they're going to think, look, we've run businesses virtually now. We don't need that that big office in London. We might just have a hub in London and let people work in other areas or I have a hub in other areas and, and work a little bit of blender virtually. And so, yeah, I can see that trend just, just continually in, in, in the North. I think North is going to be the top performing locations for the foreseeable future. I don't think they're going to grow like London did, though. I think London was a unique blend. I don't think Man Manchester's not. It's grown between five between five and seven percent over the last sort of five years which is strong growth london had ridiculous as i said they had 518 percent growth in a 20-year period that uh, my math ain't sharp enough to work that out per year but that's 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 phenomenal i don't think anywhere i'll get that again myself i think it'll even out uh for a while but the north is definitely going to be the top performers and emulate emulate that sort of thing yeah yeah definitely i mean that's that's really good and so obviously like you were saying with everything happening in the in the north now um and uh the market seems to uh, to grow do you think this will have r more rippling effects on london as in um not necessarily slow down because it's kind of slowing down now but with with the housing market there do you think it will slightly begin to depreciate when more of the focus is more up north or do you think that's not really yeah, I think London's got this. London's a heritage city. We, we, we've been world leaders, you know. Like I, I, I was born in London, so I'm super proud of London. I've got properties in the southeast as well. It's directly related to the price of London, so I don't want London to fall off a cliff. I want it to keep on doubling there, as been previously. But how it can double with the price per earning ratio, ratio, I can't see. I think London will always attract investment just because it's heritage. You know, a lot of people will just want that trophy London property, but I just can't see London. I see London dipped in 2016 
and it kind of just it just steadied along. It nearly grew out of it, and last year it just went just above the, the, its, its 2016 peak, uh, but not majorly. Four percent is not a massive growth in comparable with what London's experienced in the past. So I don't think London will fall off a cliff completely. I think London will always be uh, there. Always be some big employers that want that London office. You know, it's, it's London, New York, Hong Kong. When you think of world cities, it's definitely up there. But I don't think I think London's gonna just have just go steady along there. It's never going to, I don't I'd say never. In my view, I can't see majorly growing how it did be, before. But there always be, will be a traction of, of that in London, I think. Yeah, definitely. No, that's a really, really good point. And um, so kind of moving back to what you were mentioning about why you now invest up in the North. And obviously we've just gone over that due to the market. But obviously it's, I think you said it's around four hours away from you. So how are you able to almost, I take it you're not going to view every property yourself. So do you have like systems in place? I know you said you've got some really good uh, systems and teams and whatnot. So how have you managed to work around that issue? Yeah. So again, we want this little tiny bit back. So I remember I bought my first properties. The first, first deals I bought was all in the South. I bought a development site, like a piece of land as my first deal. I bought a flat, bought another BRR, bought a few properties in the South and then went to North and then got sidetracked. And I went to my first property education, proper property education was multiple streams of property income by progressive property. I went there and everybody was saying about it's our role. And I'm, I'm quite humble. If somebody tells me, like at the moment, when I tell people about these points on London, loads of them go, oh, London's always performed well. I think it'd be all right. And I'm like, you're just holding a nostalgic view on it. Tell me like logistically how you think it's going to grow. Do you think it's going to be foreign investment or do you think the, the, the wages are just going to all of a sudden jump up and help it grow that way? Or do you think the baby boomers and the millennials, I don't know, is it going to be a shift? Tell me something that challenges what I'm saying, apart from just it's done it before. You know, you can't tell every future from the past. It helps you indicate it. But, uh, but yeah, getting back to your question sorry i went on a bit of a tangent now but getting back to your question on the systems i went to multiple streams of property income they all said do it within an hour so i'm humble i said look these are all more advanced than me i tried doing it within an hour i got a hmo because that's all that worked locally and i soon realized that wow running hmos like planning we had planning issues it was a six bedroom hmo when we had the we had the planning come out say we've got to turn it into a four bedroom hmo and i had to battle them and in the end we could just about keep it onto a five bedroom hmo i had to raise investor finance which was fantastic but it was a lot of finance i had to raise a lot of responsibility on that bigger reefer putting on suites in and i soon realized wow like all this regulation all this management of a hmo is not i much prefer the single less and as I said, it was around that time I realised the second tenant moved out of my flat in South End, and, I, and the next tenant moved in, and she was like, "Oh, there's prostitutes walking past my house." And I was like, "Wow, like I didn't know that no better than far away." And in fact, I've got a I've got like, a network now. So it's all about the network. So yeah, build up your systems and processes. So creating procedure, how you view a property, just document what you do. So create a check checklist of how you view a property. You can go on Viewbar and hire people on Viewbar, but then go on these communities, especially young younger people that are hungry to get into it. Say to them, look, go and do some viewings for me it'd be social proof for you we'll pay you per deal we get over the line you can pay people i pay my builders i pay agents to view properties i've got a team as well that does it for me when we was buying i'm not buying as aggressively as i used to buy but when we was buying aggressively i had somebody in the team that literally was just viewing properties and dealing with the refurbs we're not buying so aggressively now so just one of my team members will look at it i've also got an estate agent that works for an estate agent but he views properties for me with other agents so again, built up these reports and relationships. A lot of that's been done online. And I'm just paying per viewing and then paying on, on, on every house. We give him a, a bonus on every house that we complete on. And for him, it's fantastic because the fact that he... Uh, 
the fact that he's looking at properties all day long anyway, because he's looking at his competitors, and the fact that he's doing valuations, so he's driving around, he can squeeze his viewers in for me, it's kind of like, it's just, it's just an extra money for him for something he's doing anyway. So they work really well. Builders don't want to get builders to them for nothing because they get peed off with it after a while, like looking at loads of properties. You can pay them, but again, you're again going to get a quote involved with paying them to view it. But what you need is the systems in place. So even agents now, you can get agents to do video calls for you. I've done a viewing with a guy that we bought a property for one of our investors and he wants to go and look at it. And I haven't viewed it myself yet. I said, jump on a, on a call. And I took him through my check sheet. So I've got a check sheet on a software called iAuditor. So we go for the properties. You, you, you know what questions you ask yourself at the viewing stage. I recommend people keep them very, you don't want to do a detailed check sheet on the first viewing. If you're viewing multiple properties, you haven't got time to fill out every door handle, every windowsill. You do the detailed one once you get the offer accepted. But you just got a quick little check sheet. So it's like the ground floor doesn't need flooring. You've got a notes little section in now. If the whole ground floor needs flooring, you sit yes. If it don't, you sit no. But if just one room does, you just add it to the notes rather than just going individual rooms. So you have a quick little check sheet. I've got a guy who'd never worked with me or anything. I said, look, let's get on a FaceTime. I got up my check sheet and I just guide him. I said, look at the guttering. What's that look like? Tick. Look at the door. What's that look like? Tick. Look at the flooring. What's that look like? Tick. Go around the bottom of the door, like the bottom of the windows. And this is a guy who's never been an investor, never had an experience. I didn't even give him a brief. I didn't even give him a like a briefing beforehand. I've just done this an experiment. I said, you're in the area. I've done a live video on it at the same time to show people, look, you're overthinking what needs to go into this. You know, you like because of that perceptions in your mind and that beliefs in your mind, because everybody said within an hour, everybody don't realize what the power you can do. Of course, it's a little bit nice if you're in there in person. Of course, there's odd little things that, that you miss. Like I had somebody go in, do me a video and he didn't show the part of the wall where there was a boiler. And then when we got in there, it's like, oh, I didn't realize that boiler was there. So the kitchen had to slightly change its design a little bit. But then you, again, you weigh up these pros and cons of, okay, messing around, that, that cost me, I think about 300 pounds to rejig the design around and a couple of extra units. But spending 300 pounds more or not having a deal full stop because I can't afford a deposit locally, what do you want? You know, like you just weigh up these trade-offs for it. Of course, there's going to be little tweaks and that, but it definitely can be done. Just yeah, getting them systems in place. Great question though, guys. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think kind of the main thing for that is obviously when you're just starting, your systems and processes aren't going to be hundred percent perfect, but now that you've encountered that, you know, that you can progress from that moving forward um, and things will definitely move smoothly. So in terms of kind of your power team, obviously you're mentioning agents, um, builders and whatnot, what is the, what would you say is the most important um, person within your power team to kind of focus on that makes things easier for you when you are doing things remotely, if that makes sense? Mm, good, really good question. A really good question. And nothing's not really springing to mind immediately. Depends what strategy you go, Dan, you know? So uh, like, like I've got most of my deals from agents and to be honest, I, I, I totally hold my hands up. I should have had secondary and thirdary systems of getting deals set up before I knew that, but just when something's working, you, you just take you off the ball sometimes, you know? Uh, it's not like, like an analogy to like, when you when you try and keep in shape, it's not till you put a few pounds on, you start really thinking about hitting the gym again harder sometimes, you know, uh, but yeah, a really important link is going to deals is, is the lifeblood of all the businesses, whether you're deal packaging, whether you're portfolio building, whether you're buying them for yourself. Deals is really, really important. So I'd, I'd say all of them are important because it's like a wheel. If you if you move one cog out, that wheel's not going to turn properly. So I'd say they're all important. But if you're really thinking about the first person to strike that up with is probably somebody on the ground that could potentially 
get your deals. Agents are great. If you can strike up a good deal with an agent and get, I've had loads of agents over the years. As I said, because I've got a system, I've got a process of how I look at the asses, what my procedures are, I've documented that. And you can just train them into that so quick uh, to do that. But agents are great, as I said, because they've got an understanding of the area. They, they're doing it anyway. So it's, it's kind of, they can do that in their normal working hours, although they're probably not allowed to, but they can. So agents are really attractable people. But also the attracting point of that is if you're paying them to do viewings for you and you're paying them a bonus on the viewings, every time they get a property, it meets your criteria, they're going to send it your way as well. But at the moment, that's that's a... Uh, yeah, agents ain't getting many deals at the moment, so that's not that strong right at its point. But uh, but yeah, I, yeah, it's a really good question. But power team, first person in a power team. So you, when you're talking power team, you're talking outside external power team, like brokers, solicitors, accountants, or you turn talking about internal team. Uh, are you yeah, yeah, so more or less just a bit of both, really. I guess it kind of comes down to like, maybe internal whether that's agents builders and so forward just the kind of the things that will help push your business forward really yeah so the most important thing as an external would be somebody on the ground so you want to network find that person on the ground whether it's another sourcing you've got paid it sources are worth their money at the front end when you go into a new location because you're not if you get the right one it's like anything you get a good and bad version of anything a human being is involved with whether that's a sourcer whether that's an accountant whether that's a doctor whether that's a boyfriend or girlfriend if a human being's involved in it you're going to get a good and bad version but what you've got to do is qualify and disqualify. I have a real qualified disqualify for everybody I work with, whether that's a marketing guy, whether that's a, a, a anybody. I want to take them through a process and it's different for builders and different for anybody. So getting a good source, if you qualify them correctly, is not only going to buy you time and run up and down the country and get you good deals. It's also going to buy you into their network of builders, into their network of the knowledge of the area. So it's going to rapidly excel your journey straight away. So I think the first connection you would need, because they're all important, is somebody on the ground, whether that be via a saucer or via somebody you're going to train into what you need them to do on the ground. So you just got them boots and feet on the ground. I think that's the first link of it, uh, to be honest. In your business, first person, first thing I would outsource to anybody and, and internally would be your admin slash bookkeeping st style stuff. And that would be to a virtual assistant. So I've got team members in, I've got three Filipino virtual assistants. I've got a team member in Columbia. She is English, but she's based in Columbia. She's got heritage from there. She's based in Columbia. I've got team members in the South. I've got two team members in the South. And I've got two, no, we've got one at the moment. We just lost one. We're, we're looking for another one. But I usually have two in the North. I've got one in the North at the moment. So we've got a virtual office. There is pros and courses, nice, all collaborating, all the team meeting together. But we've always, before, before lockdown, we've always used, we used Google Hangouts before Zoom, but we've always used these. Yeah, we've always done it virtually. There is pros and cons of it. But again, you just have to weigh up if the pros outweigh them cons. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's so important to have that, that team really just because you know you can just kind of systemize things that way and I think like you said probably one of the most important things is to have someone on the ground because essentially that's kind of the heart of the business if you're not get, getting deals through then you can't really focus on the other problems so I take it well I think one of the biggest problems that would probably occur if you're investing remotely is like the refurbishment side of things so then again when you were doing your refurbishment from a remote distance how did you in a sense manage that without a lot of things going wrong really because i know a lot of people tend to like like to see it if that makes sense yeah great question again guys i'm really impressed with your questions uh, but uh yeah so 
I find managing refurbs locally and remotely not much difference in them now. You know, builders are builders like anything, as I said, you're going to get good and bad version of it. The difficult thing with that good and bad version analogy is deal sources, builders, they don't, they don't, you don't have to go to college for or university for 10, like for years and years and years to get a degree to be a builder. You just turn up, get a bit of indemnity insurance, and away you go. You say, I can and buy, buy yourself a drill and a few few tools and you're off similar resources you can start up so easy so the lower barrier to entry and the higher the rewards and the more demand there is for these these trades the more you're going to get people in that area that are either not qualified or charlatans i've got a faith in human beings i think only probably about three to five percent of people intentionally go out to rip people off most people are just not qualified to do what they can do and but most people have not got the self-awareness to to know they're not qualified how many people do you know that are bad drivers, but how many people do you know admit they're a bad driver? And that just tells you the level of it. Everybody, like, you get in a car with a bad driver and you go, whoa, and they go, oh, he pulled out on me. You're not, no, you just like nearly crashed into him. Nobody's got that self-awareness. So even they're bad, I don't know any accountant, any trade that thinks they're bad at their trade. Everybody thinks they're good because they've not got that self-awareness. So even if someone's got great intentions, the result to you, whether they're trying to rip you off or they're bad, is still the same. You're going to lose money. So whether the intention's there or, or it's not, it kind of softer. It's, it's kind of it's kind of a softer pill to swallow if they're not doing it intentionally. But either way, you're still going to cost you money. So locally or not, it's really about qualified, disqualified processes. So I take when I try and hire people or I work with people, outsourcing or power team, anybody, I take them through a series of little mini tests before I take them on. So with a builders is less than I would if I was trying to hire somebody on my marketing team or less than I would if I was actually employing somebody. And it's different levels of qualified, disqualified processes. But builders, usually you can't be too demanding on the front end. So it's about finding that right one in the first place. And this is this is one of the big misconceptions for most people. You can't just put an advert out for building to find your great prints in the first time. You've got to kiss a few frogs, unfortunately, in everything you're doing when you build your network. So what you start off with is try and build them, find them right builders, build them repairs. You've got little certain questions you ask them on the way to, to make sure you, uh, you sort of like qualify them a little bit. We don't want to be too demanding. So what I do is I usually put the adverts out. I go through my network. I ask loads of people. I go on Facebook, ask recommendations, ask everybody. When you speak to that first builders, I then manage their expectations straight away by saying, I would usually pay around this much to have a house painted, around this much to get it fully carpeted, around this much. And I say this to them in this way, and you've got to do this in a really soft tone because a lot of builders will find this aggressively and just go, I've got loads of demand. I'd say in a soft tone, I'd say, look, the last thing I want you to do is go out and do a quote for me and you're three times the amount of money I'd pay. Because don't waste your time and my time, you know? So if you can tell me you can be in the ballpark of these figures, of course you don't know until you see it. If you can tell me you're in this sort of ballpark, then just get out and get a quote done for us, mate. If you can't, this is building rapport with them straight away. If you can't, I don't want to waste your time doing a quote, you know? Also say to them, look, when you go out there, just do a little bit of a verbal. Don't worry about writing it down. Don't want to waste your time because if it comes into off, then I, like, I don't want you spending hours on this. And it's fair enough. If you can get that money for it, don't expect you to do it me cheaper anyway. So, but then I'll say, to them little words like this but remember i can be i can be uh i can be uh wholesale not retail so i can give you consistent work so you've got to put the trade-off in the fact that i'll give you consistent work you haven't got to advertise for anything you do them in between jobs not i say to them not to tell you how to do your business but mi mi mrs uh 
Mrs. Penelope that wants a boiler done once every 12 years. You charge her for whack for it. Of course, that's your business. But somebody who's going to give you 10 boilers a year, I want that reflected that you've not got to advertise for it. You're not got to worry about future work. So I explain this all to them in a really soft tone at the front end. That's the first part of it. I'll get them then committed to do a quote. They're then time committed and we've hopefully built a little bit of rapport. Once we've built that little bit of rapport and they're time committed, I then start getting a little bit more demanding. So I then say like, okay, I need daily updates on WhatsApp. Here's my, here's my, here's my uh, contract. Look, it's not a contract. It's here's our heads of terms. It's just I'm managing expectations. So I want daily updates on WhatsApp. I want video calls. I say, a reason I want this, man, I say this in a soft tone as well. The reason I want this is because I'm, I'm miles away. I've had many builders that do a job, took them three months, which would have took them three weeks because they're squeezing other jobs. So I need proof that you're on there. I don't distrust you, but of course, we're miles away. I can't just pop on the job. So I need you to do me some video calls. I need to do some videos. I need to do photos every day. Uh, Paul Tinker, great guy. He was like, I've done a talk on one of these things. He was like, oh, like they can hide things on photos. I said, of course they can. But again, you've got to make that trade off. If you just don't do it full stop and you want to only do it locally, that might mean not doing it full stop, should I mean? So yeah, of course, sometimes you get up there and they've hid something on a picture or some like on the on the they've strategically planned the videos or something. But again, if you get on a video call with them and point them around, show me that over there, show me that over there, show me that over there, and you've got a payment plan. So for me, it's like, look, we'll pay, we'll pay for all the materials up front. So you haven't got to pay money out of your pocket. We'll pay you after that first week all your wages. So you, you're not working backwards, you can pay your guys, and we'll pay you weekly why you do that so you've got no upfront costs you've got no cost on your wages because you're going to pay your guys weekly or monthly but even weekly so we pay you weekly but we want these updates in the middle as we go along just to show you actually work and doing what you're doing and we'll make these stage payments if you don't we won't release it if they don't i won't release it so then they've got to chase me for it you know so and again the funny final payment you say to them look tell me a time scale when you're going to finish this property is it going to be three weeks okay i'm going to turn up in three weeks and four days to give you a little bit of a buffer I'm happy you got off the video to pay you up to 90%, but I'm not the final payment's not going to be released until I've snagged that in person. And when you go to a new location, you want to do that in person, first of all. You want to make that effort to get there. Once you've got a team on the ground, if you've got this guy on the ground that you can just pay per jobs or your agent, you take them with you every time you snag that. So eventually you train them into what to look out for. So you then slowly take that away from yourself so you don't have to snag it you've got somebody on the ground but yeah if you go through this process you still have to kiss a few frogs you still get builders you get a bit comfortable with them they get comfortable with you and they squeeze jobs in but yeah if you go through this process it mitigates it as best as possible and as i say to people as well look at things on a bigger picture say the builder don't finish saying correctly it costs you 400 pound more that might be a month's rent don't see it as a month's rent you've lost. See it as a potential. If you've been investing locally, you can't afford the deposit. See it as in 25 years' worth of no rent because you couldn't afford to get started. So you have to weigh up these traders. Of course, there's a little tweaks and that, but I get it on local builders. Even if I'm on the ground, I'm not popping in there every day, even if it's local. And I get the same sort of challenges from local builders, you know? So, yeah, hope that answered a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was a, a fantastic answer. And, um yeah, I think those those sort of mitigations, like you said, I guess they really, really help in terms of making sure the builder is doing what they're doing. And obviously paying weekly, I, I think a lot of people um, sort of wouldn't necessarily say that. But obviously, if you're getting the weekly updates then and the daily updates and you know what they're doing, then um, I guess it benefits them more as well, because then they do have that cash flow to to pay their staff, like you said. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of benefits in doing it that way. And I guess 
for, for anyone that's sort of new as well, I guess you, you learn a lot more because you, you're sort of seeing what's happening every single day rather than, I don't know, weekly or, or monthly getting updates. You're seeing it day in, day out. So you're learning what's going wrong and, and how you can fix it next time as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Local, you've, you've either got to pop in there daily or get them to send you daily updates. You don't know if they're... I've had local jobs and I've turned up and they're like find them up where are you you know oh we'll just, we'll just squeeze this in you know so again if you make that stipulation even if it's local you say i'm going to be on site every day i need to make sure you're going to do this on the time scale especially when you say you're not going to get your final payment so you give you squeeze them to that time scale it helps keep them accountable as well human beings at nature take the path of least resistance all the time so you less they're kept accountable even ourselves kept accountable you can you can generally drift out of just that's just human nature. It's not out of a conscious decision. So again, you're helping them out by keeping them accountable with that as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in terms of the, so obviously when you're getting the updates, do you? I guess obviously you've got like a schedule of works, and then you sort of hold them accountable to that. And if it's not done, then you you don't release the, the payment. Is that right? Yeah, so you can either do it on a weekly payment scheme or you can do it on a milestone thing. So you could say, look, I want these milestones here as the next payment's not getting released until that milestone's here. You've got to negotiate with them a bit. Some of them will am and ah, some of them will be, oh, you've got to trust me. Uh, like, just give us 50% up front. It's like trust is built off of, off of not verbal it's built off of building it you know so vice versa you must as well, i've got to trust you you've got to trust me but you've really you, even a softer tone i'll just voice that there you've really got to negotiate but also you've got to look at your position where you're at builders are in demand so you might think do you know what I'll, again it's always that like trade-offs that's that's the perfect case scenario you might get builders says i'm only gonna give you every other day updates and you might think look i've got nobody else like and uh he wants a little bit of money up front but you're not going to release the next bit of money until that stage is proven and you just weigh up these circumstances in the individual case of and, and all dependent on what are my options you've only got one option and he's giving you this option and you can't find anybody else then you have to be a bit more flexible on that if you've got a few options then you you get a bit more stricter on your flexibility with it so so yeah 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 definitely i guess it all all just sort of comes down to to what your situation is at the moment and how much leeway you can give yourself. But yeah, there, there's some brilliant points in terms of builders. So yeah, obviously um, sort of moving on, obviously we know you're, you're quite big on mindset and um, we were sort of talking about it briefly before, before we started recording. So yeah. Um, what sort of, what have been sort of some of the biggest challenges that, that you've faced in terms of mindset in your journey and, how have you overcome them? Well, okay. Uh, yeah, that's a massive challenge, by the way. And by the way, saying that, people always ask me, what's the biggest challenge in remote investing? I say mindset. It's people getting around that mindset. Of course, it's going to be trade-offs, as I said before. I, I don't paint no picture on it, but the trade-offs can be well worth it. You can do things virtually that you can do in person. But my own personal mindset battles, uh, yeah, wow. Like, so at the age of 21, uh, I got sectioned under the Mental Health Act. So property section locked up like not allowed that into public domain uh so yeah uh i had a mental like health illness should you call it if you want to call that burnout some people like to call it i just called it drive drive myself absolutely bonkers and mad you know i literally drove myself mad to the point of incarceration into an asylum but uh, i can make joke of it it wasn't very joking at the time but i really so what i was doing is i was just taking on taking on too much and not sleeping properly and then my mind would pop. And then I sort of, and again, similar to yeah, complacency, got myself a bit better. I, I went from, 
there was a blend and this beyond the, this podcast to explain it but it was a blend of circumstances that, that led to it uh like life circumstances at the time i was smoking loads of weed and smoking too like it was more of a sleeping tablet i was drinking quite heavily uh so there was a blend and I was, I was i was taking on too much like like mentally as well not getting enough sleep and yeah and then i'd just give up smoking weed one day because i wanted to be more motivated and i didn't sleep and i had loads going on and my head popped I then went into a big depression for about nearly two years. I wouldn't even leave the house. And my anxiety levels were really high. Then I built, slowly built up my confidence again, started getting out there, started doing bits of business. I've always been that business mindset. And then relapsed again, you know, like about, uh, about 24, 25. I started smoking again as a sleeping pill and stopped again and didn't sleep properly. And I linked it to my sleep, sleep now. But then... I managed this as well. The next time I managed it, the, the relapse wasn't quite as bad as the first one. So if the severity of the first one out of 100 was 100. I completely was nuts at the time, and I don't mind laughing about it. My mind was gone. Second time, it's probably more like a 70. Then I managed to get out of it. The first time it took me a year and a half, nearly two years to build out of it and get the confidence to come out. I couldn't even leave my house from anxiety. Then the second time, it took me just under a year then I managed it for over 10 years and then I went to multiple streams of property income and it overloaded my head. I had a, I had a failing coffee shop that was going on at the time. Uh, I had a few properties that went empty. I just loads going on. I was trying to stretch myself too quickly, going to too many avenues again. I wasn't smoking weed this time, by the way. So then when I got sectioned the first time, I said it's drug-induced psychosis because I was smoking weed. I knew it wasn't that. It wasn't like it contributed towards it without a shadow of doubt, but it wasn't I just smoked a joint and my mind went crazy. But this time I had no weed in my system, but I wasn't sleeping because my mind was too active. So it just popped again. But as, as I said, the first one was 100, second one was 70. The third one was probably like 30. I recognised I had to navigate out of it really quickly. Also, I had some business interests. I had a small portfolio at the time. I had, a, 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 had a, a, I had a, now my wife, it was my, my girlfriend at the time. I had different commitments, but I recognised it a lot quicker. I learned the first time I learned, second time I learned a bit more, this third time I learned. So, but I also was humble enough to go, look, my ego thinks I can just power through. I, like, I should be able to take this on and I can take this all on the chin, but I can't. The truth of it is I couldn't. So I needed to change something. Like if I keep on doing, if you keep on doing what you're doing and expect the same results, if you're not happy with your results and you're doing the same thing you keep on doing, that's just a sign of madness. Einstein said it. You can't do the same thing time and time and time again and expect different results. So I had to realise I really had to readjust what I'd done. If I didn't want my head to keep on popping, I wanted to change, trace my entrepreneurial dreams. But I didn't want my head to keep on popping. My wife was going, oh, do you think it's worth it? I said, yeah, listen, I'd rather go mad tracing what uh, trying to achieve something in life for that sense of purpose then sit on my hands and never tried but obviously i've just got to learn and readjust again like uh so yeah uh really mindset battles coming out of it confidence battles coming out of that again when it happened the third time it wasn't as bad i really managed it really quickly and easily i got out of that next one about in about six months but it really does knock your confidence and your mindset and you doubt yourself and i'm made for this and same it keeps on happening but at that point I really took on meditation. So every morning I started meditating. I remember in the midst of it, I started meditating and I could literally only meditate for a minute without my mind going like just bonkers everywhere. And my mind was super active. I remember doing my first meditation. I got a meditation timer on my phone. I put on a minute. I thought, I'm just gonna start a minute, pushed in a minute, put my phone down, sat there like in your position, my hands like that, my eyes closed. 
And I thought, I can't press the button on my phone. Like, I feels like I've been sitting here for 10 minutes. Looked down at my phone and it was like 45 seconds. I was like, wow. So I closed my eyes again and sat there. I was thinking, maybe the maybe the, 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 the notification buzzer at the end is not switched on. Open my eyes again, it's 55 seconds. So that's how busy my mind was. I couldn't even sit there for a minute. But I started off with a minute and I incrementally built up. So I've done a minute for about, for about probably about six weeks and I built up to two minutes and I built up to three minutes. And every time I was, I couldn't do a minute. I still probably can't do a minute to this day, completely blank in my mind, but I get the method behind it. Your mind's like a muscle. So every time you realize your mind's drifting, every time you bring that back to your breath or back to that focus point, it's like a reputation for your mind and really, really makes it stronger. So each time I was getting to a minute without looking at my phone and thinking it was 10 minutes, up into two, three, then five, then 10. I now meditate twice a day for roughly 20 minutes each session. Some days I do an hour, depending on when I get up. But yeah, meditation has been transformational for me. But I also in blend that with, like, so in the morning I do, a, I'll, I'll mix around my meditations, like with my exercise. Sometimes I'm doing hit training, next time I'll be doing a bit of weights, next time I'm going running. It just keeps me interested. But I really blend that in to some sort of form of visualization. And I was really dubious of all this. I thought it was a little bit like a, a little bit sort of mystical, mystic Meg sort of stuff. But when I started understanding the science, I really studied the science behind performance. And science is really catching up with these, these, these old mystics and these yogis and these Buddhas and they're putting them on brain scans and seeing what's happening in your mind when you get into these mindful spaces and, the, and, and you get your mind into these deep places and think and grow rich. I just listened to that again recently because I was having a bit of a wobble with myself. I was like, you know what? This is a good book, Think and Grow Rich. And you study the whole history of anybody who's performed. They've had that ability to picture it in their mind. So if you can drag your mind down, down into a meditative state, it's called theta. So you slow your mind right way down and you can in-picture and implant things like that. Your mind then tries to make a confirmation bias. So we've got a thing in our brain called the, uh, 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 I don't know, uh, our react. Oh, I forgot the name of it. I say this all the time. <laughs> but it's basically the spam filter for our mind, uh, uh, reticular activating system. So it's a filter for our mind because we get so many messages in, it filters it out. And everybody's had this. You think, oh, I'm going to buy a new Audi, I'm going to buy a Fiesta. You all suddenly see Fiestas all the time. Those there all the time, but your mind focuses on them things. So in a combination of meditation, mindful practices, and implanting stuff into my mind, into my subconscious mind, that's been really, really powerful. There's loads of them. I do loads of mindset stuff, but the most powerful thing I've ever picked up, and this is the thing that's kept me sane as well since. So that was in, the last time it happened was in 2014. And I've, I've now, the first time it happened, I was taking on too much. I've now got probably 150 times more things that come, challenges that come on my plate than I did that first time when my mind popped. But because I do my mindful practices, I do yoga, I exercise, I, I, I recognize it quickly. Sometimes I, I drift and I recognize it really quickly and bring myself back. It's been, yeah, transformational for me, but yeah, the mindful practices and the visualization and the, and the formations, not affirmations, formations. If you tell yourself I'm rich, I'm rich, I'm rich. Your subconscious mind don't believe that. If you, if you look at your bank account in the morning and you've got 50 P in there, you know, you just, your mind's going to go piss off SBS. You say your for, formations are much different. You program your mind. I'm, I'm in the process of, becoming wealthy i'm in the process of getting the body up whatever it is you tell your mind what you're in the process of doing and implant that implanting visions into there with visualization and your mind more believes that and that's what it's about programming that subconscious mind because 90 percent of what we do is subconscious is 10 percent is conscious 
Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's um, amazing, Harvey. Really, really inspirational. And um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's um, amazing to see sort of, and I guess it shows that no matter sort of how low you are at any point in your life, you can always come back and obviously where you are now in your life just shows that. And yeah, yeah, that, that's really inspirational. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, let's add something to it. The foundation of it for me, I've realised, is sleep. You know, you've got to look after your sleep. You know, you see so many of these entrepreneurs, even Gary Vee's now saying, look, don't, don't hustle in exchange of your well-being. You know, and listen, entrepreneurship is like any other endeavour in the world. You, everybody's got an innate ability of how good they'll be at it. So if you take golf, for example, some people practice as hard as Tiger Woods, but his innate ability with practice made him the best of all time or one of the best of all time. Somebody else could practice as much, but you've got a ceiling point of where your natural ability will take you. You have to practice to get to that ceiling point. So same with entrepreneurship. You've got Elon Musk, Gary Vee. They're, they're, uh, they're like elite level entrepreneurs, you know, like you, like I've seen many people put as many hours into their business as, as Elon Musk and fail their business, you know, so they're just elite level business people, but also they've got something in their mind that they can power through, but none of us know what we're trading off for that. So Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, both of them famously had four hours sleep per day, but they both got Alzheimer's later on in life. So even if you can power it off now, you might be exchanging something off down further down the line. So many, I've read hundreds of books on entrepreneurship, uh, I just read Sam Zell's, uh, he's a property guy in America and a billionaire property guy uh, in America and he, his partner died. And again, even uh, Steve Jobs, he says in his book, or Walter, Walter uh, Isaacson wrote the book on him, he said, I know, he said he was being a CEO of both uh, uh, Apple and Pixar at the same time, working 18 hours days. His mind, body, his chemical reaction in his body got out because you're in stressor modes. Even if you don't feel stress, your body's releasing adrenaline to get through the day. So you've really got to rebalance where we're at and look after our sleep and sleep's a real foundation of it you know so yeah if you keep an eye on your sleep but look i've probably got them both on yeah i have because at night time i'm like a bit of a geek i measure i measure where i'm at with my sleep i know i can measure my performance of my sleep straight away and i know where i'm at i just know where my, where my focus is and everything you've got the odd exception of rule that can survive for less sleep but your, your performance levels is massively linked to your sleep yeah yeah 100 percent. i think that's that's so key and i think it is getting spoken about a lot more now in terms of the well-being and the sleep because there is it's, it's a toxic culture isn't it of constantly hustling but yeah it's like you said it's about having that balance and and realizing that obviously like you said your ego you want to push through that but you need to just take a step back and realize that an extra sort of two hours staying up and, and working rather than sleeping is probably going to be a lot more beneficial to sleep and obviously then you'll be performing better over a longer period so so yeah that's a fantastic definitely, point. definitely science is showing this so the average person not everybody's average can work 50 hours before the diminishing returns on focus focus is key to your performance same again people can only focus for up to about 55 minutes science is showing the focus levels everybody's slightly different some people might that might be 60 hours some people might be 40 hours but there's there's a point if you consistently so it's not like i'm going to be productive up to 50 hours and then the 10 hours after that that week i'm going to be unproductive if you consistently do 60 hours and your your peak level is 50 hours that then don't make the 50 hours before it productive and the 10 hours unproductive it makes a whole lot of unproductive 
So you can get more done, more focus deep flow work gives you more done than it does really tiring yourself out and making bad decisions and working in a tired motion. So you really need to measure yourself and life circumstances outside circumstances like some weeks i can work really long hours and some weeks i have to work shorter hours and it depends i've got a young boy now and he's sleeping patterns and other out life circumstances or different stresses that's going on in your life sometimes if you sleep i'll say this if you're riding downhill with your tires pumped up your wind behind you on a nice sunny day you can go really fast but the test is when you're riding uphill with flat tires wind in your face and rain in your face so that's when you need to know when to readjust on your energy if you try and go out flat out up that hill with the wind in your face and flat tires you're going to burn yourself out but you're not always going to be riding up the hill. You're going to get onto a flat and you're going to get onto a dance. You've got to readjust yourself and your input of energy, depending on the outside circumstances, like what I've just said, if you're on an hill, if you've in, in, got wind in your face or not, or rain in your face. So it's always that readjustment, that self-awareness to know when to put a bit more in and when to put a little bit less in. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And how do you, how do you sort of monitor that? So, you know, when to take your foot off the gas and when, you can go at it flat out. Yes, it's sleep is my biggest monitor. So usually if I'm not sleeping well, it's because I've got too much going on. You know, I'm like, I've got so much going on. So uh, too much going on. My mind's not, not not getting a chance to switch off. So sleep's usually the best monitor. But I, I call it the, the 65-95 principle. On the days that I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed or I'm doing too much I tr I'll, I'll go down to a limp mode of 65% and I do this with everything so exercise I like to do yoga every morning so I'll do a sun salutation yoga flow on the days that I really can't be bothered so that takes me less than a minute I can't justify my mind I can't give a minute to it less than a minute so you keep the habit going so this is when you're working in 65 i try not to work at 100 percent because at 100 percent your adrenaline starts pumping and it's like being drunk a little bit it releases loads of endorphins where you think you're invincible you don't realize it so you crash out so you crash but if you look at it as a chart when you crash and go below that 65 percent mark the time it takes you to recover get your energy back up and get back up to being in the productive zone which is between 65 and 100 percent it takes it you, you would have been better off to just to take it off like a boxer paces themselves. They don't go for the knockout. They know when to huddle and pace it. Like a marathon runner, don't just sprint all the time. They know when to pace it. So you know when to pace it in and out. And I said, the best markers for me is my sleep. If I'm not sleeping at night and wake up in the night and I'm thinking about sick things, or I have consistent nights where I have less sleep than I know I'm performing on, that's usually my first uh, benchmark. Again, but even in the day, if I wake up in the morning and I'm, I'm struggling to get out of bed or I'm really struggling to get the motivation to deal with some tasks or some challenges. They're little indicators saying that probably taking on a little bit too much here, but it's difficult because adrenaline can sometimes power you through and the ego is very, very large in, in the circumstances as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's so, it's so hard to find that balance, isn't it? And I guess it's something that you never really stop working on, but 100%. yeah. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, um, it's, it's been a been a fantastic podcast and um, just sort of coming coming on to the end of it um, to, to sum up, if you could go back and give your younger self three top tips, what would they be? <laughs> sleep. <laughs> Don't tell them too much. Uh, no, this thing, yeah, sleep. Definitely what like when you're young as well, you take it for granted. It's the shape you're in. Naturally, you're in better shape. You naturally you, you, your mind can probably handle a little bit more. You know, uh, uh, you take it for granted. So definitely sleep, like look after yourself and like your what's your sleep. Two is is like understanding like 
like uh, getting out my own way with the mindset side of it to so take that a bit more serious because nobody wants to admit they haven't got the mind everybody says yeah of course got the mindset i've got the courage but the thing is what holds everybody back is fear that fear of the unknown that fear of failure the fear fear of failure the fear of fear of like being embarrassed of that failure is often bigger than the desire for success so just to get out of my own way and just like be like take actionable steps and get out of my own way with that because i always had an entrepreneurial mind but i didn't start putting it to good use as young as you guys did uh uh because yeah that, that fear factor it's a sleep fear and what's the third one the third one advice to myself uh would probably be yeah probably be working on networks you know work outside of of my normal friend network as well not to i've not left my friends behind i'm still friends with them but find them right networks of people in the right space when i was young all my friends smoked weed and got drunk all the time was in and out of trouble and surprise surprise so was i you know and i don't want to lose i'm still friends with all my childhood friends today to this day but i start surrounding myself with people that had the same ambitions and the goals as me so yeah get yourself in a really good surrounding probably in the form of either a mastermind or some sort of like coaching Listen, when you pay, you pay attention, you know, like there's so much free information out there today. Like if information alone was enough, we'd all be rich, we'd all be in the shape we want to be in, we'd all be in the relationship we want to be in, we'd all be as happy as we want to be because you're one Google search away to give you the answer to any one of them questions. That accountability, being in the environments and then groups, and not just groups with other people, when you pay, your mind psychologically wants to make a value from that. You pay a whole lot of different attention than when you do when you don't. So yeah, probably getting into some sort of mastermind or some sort of coaching groups quicker than I did because my ego told me that I could do this all on my own, which you can get so far on your own, but you're definitely going to reduce where you'd get if you got into, into that right environments around the right mentors. But like anything, qualified, disqualified, you've got to get the right people for you. Not everybody is going to be a good match. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There, there's some really, really great points and it really um, sums up the, the podcast well. So yeah, um, finally then, is there any any, um, it, where can people find you if they want to connect with you? So uh, I'm mainly on Facebook. I like the communities and groups for the reason we said. So mainly Facebook, Harvey Growth Properties on Facebook. Uh, I've got Remote Property Investing Community. If anybody's thinking about remote investing, join that community. I've connected with loads of people in these areas as well. I think it's credible. So if you're thinking of a location, you can connect with these people because they're all in this group. I'm trying to make, encourage it for that. So remote property investing communities where I turn up the most. At the moment, I'm on Clubhouse so quite a bit. So you can find me on there. Instagram, as a result, is increased because of Clubhouse. But Harvey Growth Properties is all my handles everywhere, really. So you just, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, just all the social media network, uh, platforms. Yeah, perfect. We'll, we'll make sure that we. Um link them in the in the show notes but yeah it's been it's been an absolutely amazing podcast harvey massive massive thank you for coming on and um yeah we covered off some some really great topics and um yeah i'm sure our listeners will will take a lot of value so yeah massive thanks yeah thank you guys for inviting me on here seriously i'm not just saying this i don't massage people's egos for the sake of it but they was absolutely phenomenal questions really really good questions you guys on such a good path the biggest advice i would give you is if i was 18 in your step is keep on pushing forward with what you keep on doing what you're doing you know like yeah it's really admirational what you've done so far what you're doing but just keep keeping on you know accept that challenge along the way is going to happen but yeah well done guys really good questions really good podcast i enjoyed it
Yeah, brilliant. Really appreciate them kind words, Harvey. And yeah, like I said, thanks for coming on. Excellent. Post some more stuff in my remote property investing community. I think you'll find some good connections in there as well, guys. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll start being more active in that. Good, good, good stuff. <laughs> Perfect. Brilliant. Cheers, Harvey.